Harvey Oswald is the ambiguous figure at the heart of the Kennedy assassination. Any effort to explain what happened in Dallas must explain Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, and Lee Harvey Oswald is a, a mystery uh, wrapped up in an enigma, uh, hidden behind a riddle. Uh, he is not, I put it in simple words, an easy man to explain. What he arrived at at Atsugi Air Base in Japan wasn't simply an Air Force defense base. It was a CIA base, and the CIA program taking place at that base involved one of America's most secret and important reconnaissance missions, the spy plane, which became famous as the U-2 plane. Did Oswald develop ties to the CIA at Atsugi? There is no hard evidence. What is known is that he started to learn Russian and openly espoused the virtues of Marxism to fellow Marines. If you complained about, oh, we've got to go on a march this morning, or we've got to do this this morning, scrub barracks, whatever we had to do, if you were complaining about it, he would, he would say that that was the capitalist form of government making us do these things. Uh, Karl Marx and his form of government would alleviate that. Even though he was nicknamed Oswaldovich, no one investigated him or his political sympathies. This man was a man with a security clearance. This man was a man who had access to highly sophisticated materials. Uh, and he is now showing an entrance in Marxism. In retrospect, uh, I think that what this indicates, and this was the judgment of the committee, is that our own people aren't as efficient as we might think they ought to be. That more often than not, it's Keystone cops uh, and not stainless steel efficiency. Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 105. A mystery wrapped up in an enigma and hidden behind a riddle? Those are the words you just heard, and they are the words of Robert Blakey as he described Lee Harvey Oswald. Robert Blakey was chief counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He was a man who, by definition, might have known as much about the overall investigation of the assassination as anyone else up to that date. As Blakey points out, to truly understand the events in Dallas, you have to understand this man, Oswald. You also heard from one of the original and truly bona fide assassination researchers, Edward Epstein, as he described the U-2 spy plane and the nature of the base and installation at at Sugi, and its significance to the CIA. You'll hear more from him later in this episode. You'll hear more from Blakey, too. There are things that Blakey and others knew that have not yet seen the light of day, for sure. Now, ultimately, Blakey concluded that Oswald was the man that fired those three shots from above, from the depository, but that there were likely more shooters than just Oswald and thus a conspiracy. In the end, he teased together a rather inelegant set of conclusions that included a rather poor use of acoustical information 
to back up the idea of a fourth shot, and thus a conspiracy. But in the end, that was for the record books, a formality of sorts. Like the Warren Commission, the HSCA had a conclusion that was looking for a convenient set of facts, a set of facts to back up that conclusion. In the end, Blakey and the HSCA would do their best to pin it on the Mafia, and maybe they were right. And maybe that was the reason that he believed quite strongly that Oswald fired the shots. But wait a minute. I am getting way ahead of myself here. Today, we are simply going to take a trip first to Dallas, then to California, then to New Orleans, then to France, then to London, then to Helsinki, and finally to Moscow in the Soviet Union. In today's episode, we bring Oswald home from his 14-month stint in the Marines overseas in Japan, the Philippines, and Taiwan. But he's not quite yet out of the Marines. His last assignment is back in the States as he nears completion of his stint in the Marines. And it is at a Marine installation in Santa Ana, California. We'll take you through this last little jaunt and then pivot afterwards. Later in the episode to what happens next, when Oswald receives an early discharge from the Marines and he heads home to take care of his mother who was injured and ostensibly needs his help and whose injury was the basis for his early discharge. But strangely, he doesn't stay to help her. He begins execution of his premeditated travel plans, his beeline to the Soviet Union and to what he believed would be a better way of life for him, or maybe more. I'll take you through this travel, what got him there, and then in the last half of today's episode, I'll pass the baton to the PBS Frontline Special on Oswald, as we all listen to that magnificently done show, and how it tells the story of those first few hours and days, and what happened the moment Oswald arrived in the Soviet Union you'll hear some of the folks that actually came into contact with Oswald, including the in-tourist tour guide that not only showed him around Red Square, but was a dutiful KGB informant feeding information to the Soviets about Oswald as he arrived from overseas. A standard KGB procedure and for someone entering the Soviet Union from outside the country. So, without further ado... Let's listen to episode 105 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Now let's tell the story of the Marine Air Control Squadron in Santa Ana, California. After Oswald's 13-month tour of duty in Japan, he actually enjoyed a 30-day leave, he went back to Fort Worth and actually spent that time with his mother and even went hunting with his brother Robert during the visit. From there, he went to another Marine Air Control Squadron, or MACS, that is MAX-9. It was located in Santa Ana, California, not too far away from San Diego. It would be his next assignment, and it was another highly guarded radar site. There wasn't a whole lot going on action-wise at this site, after all. It was on American soil, and it wasn't as if enemy planes were coming within radar range of the coast. The Marine Corps offered proficiency tests in Russian, 
and he took one. He didn't score all that well, but he redoubled his efforts, and it was during this time that he began to subscribe to at least one newspaper that was in Russian called The People's World, which was put out by the Socialist Workers' Party. Back in those days in the U.S., you might imagine that when a communist newspaper made its way into the mailroom, it raised a few eyebrows, and in this case, it did just that at the Marine Air Control Squadron. There was a captain there, and his name was Robert E. Block, and this rather unusual mail delivery of a Communist Party newspaper to the Air Control Squadron, well, it got his attention, and he even questioned Oswald about it. Apparently, Oswald tried to explain to the good captain that he was only trying to understand Russian theory, and somehow Oswald represented it as an exercise that a good Marine should be involved in. Whatever the case, the captain didn't take the incident any further. After the fact, many authors and conspiracy researchers have suspicious questions about the lack of investigation at this point. Here is a man in a sensitive radar installation receiving a Russian communist newspaper. But the likely honest answer to all this was that he had been cultivating, to some extent, a clown-like personification. The fact is, not too many of the folks at the installation took Oswald very seriously. They even, based on an affidavit taken by the Warren Commission from Richard Dennis, who was a Marine at the installation, well, he would recall that members of the unit used to kid Oswald about being a Russian spy. And there were other moments, too. They had a chessboard, and some of the chess pieces were red. And Oswald would, kiddingly, always choose the red chess players. The men began to jokingly call Oswald... There has been a lot of speculation as to whether or not there was another financing source involved in order for Oswald to travel back to the Soviet Union. A number of researchers have looked at this and have had grave doubts that he would have saved enough on his Marine Corps salary to go back. Oswald purchased his accommodations through a travel agency known as InTourist, and so the details are quite known. He may not have traveled like a president, but some, in relative terms, might have coined it a rather lavish set of accommodations along the way. One famous assassination researcher, Edward Epstein, actually performed an analysis in detail supporting the basic assumption that Oswald could not have saved enough on his own based on his Marine Corps salary. Epstein's analysis showed that there was probably a shortfall of at least $500. This has led to serious speculation that Oswald might have been selling information sensitive information that he obtained at the radar installation in order to finance the trip. One of the important witnesses who testified at the Warren Commission about this topic was the Marine Nelson Delgado. Delgado knew Oswald rather well. Delgado got to know Oswald at the Santa Ana installation after Oswald was essentially booted out of one living hut by his then-sergeant, and sent to a second hut where Delgado's living quarters were located. Toward the end of Oswald's time there, Delgado noticed a stack of spotter photographs which showed the flight and profile view of a fighter plane. Apparently, it was among papers that Oswald had and that Delgado saw. 
Delgado wondered why Oswald was in possession of these photos. At the time, they were likely training materials used in training classes there. Apparently, Oswald stuffed the photographs into a duffel bag with some other items that he owned, and he then asked Delgado if Delgado would bring the bag to a bus station in Los Angeles, put it in a locker, and bring back the key. Delgado recalls that Oswald gave him $2 for doing this. There is no evidence that he went on to sell this information and commit an act of espionage, no matter how minimal it might have been in the larger scheme of things, espionage. But it appeared potentially to repeat circumstances that may have occurred while Oswald was in Japan at Otsagi. As Norman Mailer describes it, Oswald was possibly on the edges of espionage. As Oswald readied himself for departure from the Marine Corps, there is no doubt that what happened next is evidence that Oswald was able to skillfully maneuver and position himself for his next big move, his trip to Russia. Normally, a transition out of the Marine Corps would require a Marine to stay in the inactive reserves for a period of two years and remain in America for that time frame. However, Oswald applies right away to Albert Schweitzer College in Switzerland, thereby freeing himself of the obligation to stay in the United States under the Marines' continuing reserve requirements. There is no evidence that he really ever considered going to this college. Rather, it appears to be just a mechanism that he deployed for the purpose I've just noted. Right around this time, his mother, Marguerite, was injured on the job. It was a rather odd injury, if you ask me. There was a can of candy that fell off a shelf, and it landed right on the bridge of her nose. Ouch. Well, she was quite deft at getting affidavits from both her own doctor and her lawyer, and apparently two other friends as well, all attesting to the idea that the accident had incapacitated her and that she needed her son back from the Marines to support her. As a result, Oswald would apply for and be granted an early hardship discharge from the Marine Corps, which he obtained in September 1959. Oswald did manage to go back to Fort Worth after the early discharge and see his mother. Apparently, he left her $100, and this is the point at which he tells her that he is in the import-export business and that he will be shipping out from New Orleans in a few days. Within a day, he's made his way onto the SS Marion Likes. This was a freighter ship, and it carried passenger traffic from New Orleans to the port of Le Havre in France, where he arrived on October 8th. He would make two more stops after arriving in Le Havre, the first one in London, and then from there make his way to Helsinki. Somewhere in the middle of all of this, he was able to obtain a visa to enter the Soviet Union. How he obtained that visa is a matter of debate, and certainly conspiracy theorists hypothesize as to whether the KGB or other Russian arm helped him with it. All speculation, of course. On October 15th, about a week after arriving in France, he leaves from Helsinki on an overnight train to Moscow, where he arrives the morning of October 16, 1959. As you might expect, the U.S. military figured out pretty quickly that Oswald was in Moscow. And when they did, the folks back in Santa Ana at Max 9 
immediately went into action. According to Warren Commission testimony from Officer Donovan, the group there immediately began changing aircraft call signs, codes, radio frequencies, and radar frequencies. Oswald had access to the location of all bases in the West Coast area, all radio frequencies for all squadrons, all tactical signs, and the relative strength of all squadrons, the number and type of aircraft in a squadron, and who was the commanding officer for each squadron. He also had the authentication codes for entering and exiting AIDZ, which stands for the Air Defense Identification Zone. He knew the range of our radio, and he knew the range of the surrounding unit's radio and radar. This information was extensive enough that it would have been difficult to recall without writing it down, but Officer Donovan indicated that it would have been possible to remove it. He could have done it himself, but it would have had to have been done secretly. It would have had to have been written down and removed. Donovan would go on to explain, though, that these authentication codes were changed from time to time as a matter of course. In fact, they're changed even if there is no specific incident requiring such change. In short, the codes are methodically changed on a periodic basis without regard to any specific incidents. This is an important point because the KGB would have likely known this fact when debriefing Oswald, knowing then that at least some of the information Oswald had to offer in that regard might have become stale rather quickly, regardless of whether the Americans knew about him or not. There is speculation at this moment as to the level of scrutiny the government, our government, would now apply to Oswald, given what they now knew about Oswald and his whereabouts. We'll get to that in a later episode. You really have to put these events in historical perspective. It was the middle of the Cold War, and perhaps it was the height of suspicion between the Soviets and the Americans. Norman Mailer, in his book, Oswald's Tale, said it best. For Americans, the most astonishing aspect of Oswald's defection to the Soviet Union was that he had been a Marine. And Marines do not defect. They plant flags on Iwo Jima. As Mailer would go on to say, Oswald had injured one of our Cold War certainties. He applied for an early discharge and a passport. He was secretly planning to go to Russia. Oswald didn't defect to the Soviet Union on a sudden impulse. We know that. This was well planned. And the question is, could Oswald have planned this alone or did he have help? Oswald's defection meant traveling from New Orleans to France, England, and Finland. From there, on October 15, 1959, he boarded the train for Moscow. Where did he get the money for his travels? He later claimed he had saved over $1,000 while in the Marines, but records show he had only $200 in his bank account. As a deluxe class tourist, Oswald had his own in-tourist guide, Rima Shirakova. 
I took him for an excursion round the city. We went to the uh, most important sites of Moscow, such as Tretikov Art Gallery, uh, the cathedrals and the treasury of the Moscow Kremlin. But Oswald seemed uninterested in the sights. On their second day, he told Rima his real reason for coming. He wanted to defect. I was shocked. I asked his motives, his reasons, and he said that it was his political views. He said that he was a communist. He doesn't approve of the American way of life. With Rima as their go-between, the KGB considered Oswald's request to stay in Russia. Vladimir Simichastny, a former head of the KGB who reviewed Oswald's case, explains why the KGB rejected Oswald. When he came to us and began to ask for asylum here so insistently, the first reaction was to refuse and not to give him permission to stay in the Soviet Union, let alone to give him political asylum. Oswald recorded his despair in what he called his historic diary. I must leave country tonight at 8 p.m. as visa expires. I am shocked. My dreams... I retire to my room. That same afternoon, we were to meet downstairs as usual. Some time passed, but he didn't appear. Certainly, I was uh, nervous and wanted to know what had happened. So that's why I uh, rushed upstairs. I knocked at the door. But there was no answer. Hotel security men finally broke down the door. We all tumbled in the room, and behind the shoulders of the two men, I saw Lee in the bath. So it was water there, and it was reddish, so it was blood. Lee uh, cut his wrist. Oswald was rushed unconscious to Botkin Hospital. His wounds were quickly stitched up and bandaged. He was then transferred to the psychiatric ward. Dr. Lydia Mikalina was on duty when Lee arrived. It was my impression immediately that this was a show suicide attempt, since he was refused political asylum, which he had been demanding. And he tried to obtain permission to stay in the Soviet Union by inflicting the wounds. After seven days, Oswald was ready to be discharged. But then the KGB called the hospital, telling them to hold him until they arrived. Sometime later, about 40 minutes, a large black car arrived and three young men came in. They confiscated his medical history, his discharge paper and all his documents. And then they told me they were taking him away. 
The KGB wanted to see if Oswald could be useful to them. Counterintelligence and intelligence, they both looked him over to see what he was capable of. But unfortunately, neither could find any ability at all. Oswald was moved to a hotel while the KGB considered his fate. After three days, he decided he'd had enough. It seems like three years. I must have some sort of a showdown. On October 31st, he went to the U.S. Embassy and demanded to see the consul, Richard Snyder. He put a piece of paper on my desk. It said, I have come to revoke my American citizenship. I have applied for Soviet citizenship. He also volunteered the information that he'd been, while in the Marines, he'd been a, uh, a radar technician. And uh, that when he became a Soviet citizen, he, in, he intended to offer uh, to the Soviet authorities everything that he had learned. Snyder reported Oswald's threat to Washington, and the Marines changed their radar codes. But the KGB says it was unimpressed by the military intelligence Oswald was sharing with them. There were conversations, but this was such outdated information. The kind we say the sparrows have already chirped to the entire world, and now Oswald tells us about it. Not the kind of information that would interest such a high-level organization like ours. Meanwhile, word of Oswald's suicide attempt had reached the top levels of the Kremlin. Yekaterina Fertseva, seated just behind Nikita Khrushchev, was the highest-ranking woman in the Politburo. Fertseva became Oswald's champion and demanded the KGB reverse its decision and allow him to stay. If he's begging, to hell with him. Let him stay here in order to avoid an international scandal on account of such a nobody. We were not convinced this would be his last act of blackmail. We expected he would try again, which would be difficult to deal with in Moscow. So we decided to send him to Minsk. In January 1960, Oswald moved to Minsk. He now had the chance to become what he had always wanted to be a model young Marxist. Thank you for listening to episode 105 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 